strangers and Angel Grove residents, welcome to the Sentai Truther Club. I am your host, Grav, and with me is my lovely co-host, Kennedy. Hey! And today, we're doing a one-on-one perspective on Season 1 of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. That's right. Kennedy, first of all, how have you been lately? Uh, let's not talk about the real world. The real world is bad. Let's let's only talk about Angel Grove today. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. Angel Grove looking good. Angel Grove is definitely looking like a snack right now. <laughs> I'm Goldar and I'm ready to come down. <laughs> in this in this if you're gonna be Goldar, can I be Scorpina? <laughs> we can just tag team the Megazord together. It'd be a good time. According to uh, one of the tweets that was directed at Sentai Truther, Goldar and Scorpina had a baby. So that's going to be a hard no from me, dog. <laughs> apparently, wow. it's, apparently it's coming up, though. So, so we'll definitely discuss it if it happens. Wow. I'm, I was just making a goof. I had no idea that there was a plot point like that coming. That's incredible. That's so good. I'm excited. But let's let's not get too excited about the next season. That'll be for episodes that you'll be listening to soon after this one. For now, let's talk about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Season 1. I mean, what a journey, you know? Pretty incredible. I just want to say, like, you know, you start on a really high note in terms of, like, we all agreed in our first episode of this show that the pilot is just really incredible, that it really guides you perfectly into this brand new world. And that it like really just was exciting. It was thrilling, and it you could see like watching this pilot. Wow, yeah, I would I would renew this show. You know, I would be like, yes, do some episodes. Let's go. It's very impressive. And then the show kind of loses its legs a little bit after that. Of course, if you want to know exactly which episodes we watched, we did not watch all sixty episodes of the first season to make this podcast. We used a guide, which you can find on our Twitter. It's like the pinned tweet I, still, right? Yeah. So we have a guide to which episodes are sort of like the ones you have to see to understand what happened. And we watched those. So like the first couple episodes after the pilot are all, I don't know, Grab, how did you feel? Like we watched three that happened before Green with Evil, High Five, Teamwork, Peace, and uh, Peace Love, and Woe. Let's get into those a little bit just in terms of like... I feel like the show really just kind of floundered at first to really, like, it becomes so much more than this later, but, like, at the beginning, I don't know. It's just, it's a really hot mess. (laughs) Yeah, so I believe before I started, the very first time I started watching this season of Power Rangers, I straight up was watching every episode, and I did not like it (laughs) like i think like i think i watched every episode and then i was like i need a filler guide and then i looked at the den of geek one and the den of geek one was pretty good so i basically took a bunch of different filler guides that i found on the internet for power rangers and just took every episode that was mentioned across all of them and put them into one guide to give it the most honest perspective that the internet had on what was canon right and the episodes before Green with Evil, we've talked about it before, but the episodes before Green with Evil are bad. They're not good. Uh, the ones that are here that are listed are mainly listed because it's a lot of firsts. 
Yeah, they'll get a piece of technology or they'll have a, a lore reason that shows up multiple times and is very pertinent. There is one I would say that is does have to do with like huge amounts of character development, which is peace, love, and woe. And that's mostly in terms of the, the Blue Ranger and him kind of getting caught up to snuff to the, the rest of them in terms of like power levels and stuff. Yeah. So like that was really cool. But like teamwork and high five, a lot of those were just displaying a lot of firsts for the Power Rangers. Like the first times that they use the communicators and how the communicators work, how the command center works. Right. Uh, teamwork had a lot of like, hey, wait, these are what the Zords can do on their own. And this is what happens when, you know, all the Rangers team up. And that's when they were given like weapons that were that they would could all assemble together to form this ultimate weapon, you know? Yeah. Like there was a lot of that. I still found that enjoyable. There there is one of them that is a lot weaker than the others. I think these episodes are great, but I it feels like flukes because pretty much since Green with Evil, a bulk of the filler guy takes place Green with Evil and after, which just goes to show that a lot of those episodes didn't really matter. No. And not only did they not really matter, they weren't good. No. And the, the thing is, is that there, there becomes a point where the showrunners get relatively good at mashing up the uh, purchased Japanese footage and the newly shot American footage. And like, it's not in like any of these episodes that we're talking about right now. And like, that's really indicative of like a lot of the early season just in general. I also peeked at some of the episodes outside of the watching guide, and it's the same story. Basically, for the most part, the episodes before Green with Evil, you feel like you're, it's kind of almost like you're watching Adventure Time, and there's two 15-minute episodes. It's like, that's watching Power Rangers. There's like a 15-minute, like, slice of life after school special, and then there's a 15-minute, like, action show, and they don't really have that much of a relationship, you know? Yeah, a lot of it's, like, procedural teenage drama of its time that's, like, very milk toast because this is the early 90s, and then you just get action sequences out of nowhere. It's kind of like hodgepodge. Yeah, there's not, there's not a strong relationship. Whereas, as it goes... They find these clever ways to write news stories that appeal to American audiences um, that use these like bits of the Japanese footage in these ways that's totally cohesive, you know, and it's like a completely different experience when it's cohesive. Um, but yeah, episodes like teamwork. Um, I mean, my God, you know, like. They just like it just jumps around from thing to thing. There's unresolved battles in episodes like that. Even in Green with Evil, there's a little bit of that, but they're starting to like get better about that. But like there's this like common trope in like the early part of the first season of Power Rangers where they will fight an enemy and it comes to an inconclusive conclusion and then they're just back at the command center. Like the, is like the next scene. Like it happens so many times and it gets better as the season goes. But it's so funny because they'll literally, it'll just be like, like the scene of the battle ends with them just being like, ha, and like everybody flies backwards, like them and the monster, like the, 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 them and the monster like fly backwards or something. And then they all just like look at each other, like, like they're about to go for round two. But then instead it's back at the command center, Zordon, how do we beat Scorpina? And it's like, Zordon's like, well, Rangers, there's a special weapon or whatever. But it's like, wait, one second ago. 
y'all were in a fight that did not seem resolved at all with like civilian lives on the line. So like, what's the continuity here? <laughs> yeah, it gets really bad. I, I I don't I don't really have any sort of like excuses for that type of stuff that you could just like write away very easily because it is it, it's like the equivalent of say you get ambushed by an enemy in a JRPG and you press flee and then you flee the battle and you're like shit how do I beat it right you go to the nearby town you pick up some weapons some new armor you go back and the enemy's in the exact same spot <laughs> At best, at best, a lot of times things have changed even with the enemy in these ways that don't make sense either, you know? Yeah, because they'll just leave the enemy there and then it'll just uh, skip straight to the kaiju. Or it'll be like they're fighting the kaiju, it's inconclusive, and then they're fighting the small enemy again after the, like, weapon gathering phase. Like, it's just very, it just jumps around in these ways that are... Like, I know it's a kid's show, but there's a point where it's so incoherent that you can see why this wasn't rating well at first, even with kids. Because, like, this was too much. Even, like, a four-year-old's going to look at this and be like, this doesn't make sense. You know? Like, it, it's, like, to that level in some of the episodes where, like, no, no one can follow this. Not even a child. <laughs> yeah, it might actually be detrimental to your children's health. <laughs> so they start to correct that. And Peace, Love, and Woe is, like, probably the best example of like the episodes that I watched before Green with Evil where they really put the effort in to like hey let's like it it's a little bit weird but let's still like let's make this kind of make sense in terms of like how the enemy functions how like you know the timeline of events occurs and things like that so that instead of it being like oh Billy's trying to get a date and then for no reason at all, suddenly we're in a dark dimension with an enemy. It's instead like, no, the enemy captures Billy's perspective date, and there's this whole, like, they cut all these things together in these really clever ways to make all this stuff work, and it's just, like, actually pretty, like, on point. And I think, like, when when Power Rangers comes together like that, it's like, sometimes they actually tell these very compelling stories that are really unique because it's this blend of like two different cultural themes mashed together, but then forced to make sense against each other. And it's really cool, actually. I agree. I think that in instances like that, it's it's pretty it could be pretty pretty grandiose. But in other instances, it can get it can be extremely lazy. Like uh High Five was a good example of that, where it was just extremely lazy in terms of like we need to add character development for the sake of acting for adding character development. Right. And I think then it kind of culminates into the savior of all saviors, which is the green with evil, which we just got through recently talking about in a previous episode with Brandon Buchanan and green with evil, easily the best piece of 90s television that I've watched so far. Like yeah. I think back to like all the TV that I've ever watched of like 90s television, even Dragon Ball Z to a certain extent, right? Mm. Like, even that type of stuff, I would still put Green with Evil as, like, way better. Because you got to think, we didn't have DBZ Kai, so, like... Did you watch Dragon Ball? I'm just curious. I didn't like it. Okay. Um. So, Dragon Ball got aired on Toonami after Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. And I was like, no, I like the big beams and the, the, the world-obliterating blasts and all that <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, so, like, when I think back to, like, all that 90s television... I think Green with Evil is easily the best television arc of that time period, at least for, like, kids and young adults. I don't see 
anything coming close to that. It's like better than Friends. <laughs> it's oh, better than easily, Seinfeld. Easily. <laughs> you know, I just want to say part of why I'm making this show is because I truly and unironically believe that in terms of like quality television of this era, that Power Rangers was absolutely hands down better than Friends in every possible way. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs> like even down to the humor, I find probably funnier. Also, Friends has some really bad seasons. Uh, I'm looking at you, season five and season ten. There's some humor in Power Rangers that is actually like top tier. Yeah, just timeless. Either timeless or like it could either be timeless or cringe based or discomfort, but it's funny discomfort. You know, <laughs> like it's it's always it's always a, it's always a fun ride. Uh, but it's. You know, once we take that high prestige television of Green with Evil, the whole entire show lifts up, right? Because then it becomes about Tommy and the rest of the crew. And Tommy is the best character. Like, he's the best character in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It's it's hands down, like, there's nothing comes close to Tommy. And you're, you're talking to someone who's a Blue Ranger fan, you know? <laughs> he also goes through a really complex character arc. because. Tommy shows up and he's sort of like the Goku of the Power Rangers or the Superman. You know, he's like the guy who has showed up who has like the ultimate powers and abilities in a lot of ways, it seems like. Like his Dragon Zord is like pretty close to able to fight on the level of the Megazord, which requires all five of the other Rangers. That alone kind of just like sums up his power level, you know? is like he could almost take all of the other rangers put together. Um, and of course, we know this because that's how Green with Evil goes, is he almost takes all the other power rangers put together. Um, I would say he did. I, I still call bullshit on the fact that the Zords came back. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, there's definitely an argument to be made about the fairness. Uh, you know, this is, might be like an angels interfering in an otherwise fair baseball game situation. Yeah, it, I mean, to be fair, Zordon is an extra-dimensional being. He probably has powers beyond our understanding, and he could, like, reform them back into shape. Uh, I wouldn't put it past it. In terms of total lore, I don't remember the exact episode, unfortunately, because I watched so many, like, close together and stuff, and I made a lot of notes, but I didn't note everything. But Zordon actually says in an episode that it's his power that does that stuff. He actually says that. It makes sense, because he gave Tommy... The green power uh, at one point, which is the return of an old friend, which is towards the end of the season. But he gives Tommy temporary power at first yeah. to, to help out the Rangers. And it's it's very funny to see that because when you put that into context, that means that truly like you are a part of Zordon should you choose to accept. So Zordon's kind of like a godlike figure. Yeah. Almost. And, and that's the thing is like, you kind of wonder at first, what is Zordon really doing here? Is he just like a historian who's sort of bullying these kids into fighting for him or something like that? But it's like... You know what he reminds me of, actually, now that I think about it? He reminds me of Zeus from, like, Disney's Hercules. Sure. Because, like, he almost has that sort of chummy personality, but he's powerful. Like, it's very clear that he's powerful. And he acts as, like, a guiding light for the Hercules character. So yeah. I think it's it's probably close to that. I would say it, it does. It, Zordon definitely the way Zordon's written does feel like a like a Disney sort of 
guiding father character. Sure, sure, of course. And of course, that that's the American influence in a lot of ways, right? Like, that trope was extremely popular at that time. It's still relatively popular with American audiences, you know? But especially in the 90s, like, every everything revolved around that, you know? Like, who is Zordon? He's Morpheus, right? Like, he's he's any character. He's Gandalf, you know? Like, he's any character of that type um, who just, like, comes through in the clutch with, like, the ultimate power, you know? I think he's more eccentric than, than those, than the old wise man characters, though. Sure, yeah. And, I mean, I, off, I, I like to talk about how Zordon is kind of a bad actor at times. Um, in fact, I'll draw attention to that in a second, but, uh, well, actually, no, let me just do that. So there's one episode in particular that stood out in this regard. So there's a lot of episodes. If you watch this stuff, there's a lot of episodes where Zordon is kind of a bad actor. Um, but Gung Ho, uh, which I actually thought was a really strong episode, um, aside from the really terrible racism, which I will not apologize for at all because it's one of the most racist episodes also. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I'm not saying it's racist on the level of like some media that I've watched, but I'm just saying in the, in the context of like Power Rangers, this is one of the most racist episodes of the show easily. Um, and like, yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but the, the storytelling and like the character arcs and like a lot of the stuff in that episode outside of that is really quality. Um, and one of the funny things, though, okay, so this is, like, probably, so Zordon, he, legitimately, he is a bad actor. I mean that. He lies to the kids a lot. He puts them in danger for no reason frequently. He just, like, plays with them and their emotions and stuff. He pretends, like, he gives them, like, opportunities to make their own decisions. But then he just forces their hand anytime that they actually are not, like, really doing what he wants for the most part. Now, I won't say that he's, like, completely morally reprehensible in return of an old friend he tells the rangers they have to decide what to do about their parents because that's way too he cannot he cannot get in the middle of like that situation of their parents being held hostage like that's their family it's too important and so like zordon's not like he knows where to draw the line with this stuff somewhat but in in gung-ho tommy and jason have to get these weapons they need to get these weapons. It's really important. And like Zordon sends them to go get the weapons. And like um, they get attacked by this creature, Titanus, who is this like sort of Zord looking thing. And it turns out to be a Zord who is sort of this like Loch Ness monster kind of creature, I would say, like is how I view it. You know, Titanus kind of shows up and starts fucking with Tommy and Jason and like is like throwing fucking fire at them while they're trying to like climb this steep hill and all this shit. It's a really great scene. But at the end of the episode, Zordon's like, actually, Titanus is a valuable ally and friend. I was just messing with you. <laughs> I... <laughs> oh my god. I completely blocked um, that out of my head. Th they use Titanus in, in Zord transformations and stuff after that though. He was trying to. Yeah. He was trying to but teach a like lesson, this... though. But His lesson like... was that they got to work together. They got to. They like got to get gun ho, out, dude. This is like. This is like not the. This is not the appropriate way to teach lessons. <laughs> you know, like this is too. These kids could have been killed theoretically. Like you know, like we act casual about it, but actually, the show itself does remind us regularly that, like, man, that was life or death back there. After gung ho. 
we have like a couple of other episodes, one of which you think is not good at all, which is uh, Wheel of Misfortune. And then we kind of get into more Tommy-centric episodes before he's gone for a short little while. And I think once you get into like Island of Illusion, which is the the clip show to just kind of remind you of all the character development, you're also treated to a villain that can create like dimensions where everyone can get sucked into and is actually really powerful because I think he could also like cast Blizzard from his mouth. And that whole Island of Illusion episode was definitely interesting just because there was situations that even though we knew it was just a clip show, like <laughs> people's lives were in danger. Like yeah, there was one totally. time I think where Tommy thought everyone was an enemy and was like straight up attacking all of them. And I'm just like, holy shit, you guys are so lucky that Tommy just totally. doesn't immediately kill his opponents. Because the man was like yeah, scared I of for his life. And thought that all of his best friends were putties. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a really it's a really intense moment for him. There's definitely a lot of like high stakes, high tension moments like that where you really feel like, damn, like these these kids are like they're in real danger doing this shit. This is not a joke, you know? Yeah. And especially, I think uh, as a child watching the show, especially like this is a little less scary to me as an adult. But the idea of being whisked off to another, like, dimension that's just designed to, like, fuck with you and, like, you don't know how to escape it, that's terrifying. That's a really spooky concept. A Goosebumps book. <laughs> when you think about it, yeah. Yeah. So Tommy, like I say, he comes in and the Green Ranger is kind of like Goku. But what's cool about the Power Rangers, especially in the first season here, is that Tommy doesn't get to just, like, save the day all the time. And in fact... He very like rapidly like he only gets to be like the the Superman for like a little bit before the uh, the Green Candle episodes, which completely strip him of his powers for a while. And it's like there's this whole long period of time where our guy who was Goku, who could beat anyone, is just like showing up in the background occasionally and being like, hey, guys, what's up? And just like acting kind of sheepish like and it's like. Actually, pretty incredible storytelling, I have to say. Yeah, it was. It was really, really good uh, for the Green Candle. I actually enjoyed the character developments between not only Tommy, but Jason. Because this was like Jason's Definitely. moment to step up. Now that everybody couldn't rely on Tommy anymore. So we, we actually did finally get to see some like significant character development in Jason instead of Jason just suddenly becoming the foil to Tommy. Right. And of course, that also like reflects an, uh, the whole arc of like Jason kind of struggling at first to accept Tommy's arrival, coming to terms with it, like becoming friends with Tommy and then like relying on each other as allies. And now it's like, okay, Jason, like you're back in the driver's seat after all of that. After that, all of that. Like it's actually, that's. When when I talk about this show and, like, why I, I like it, that's the kind of storytelling that's really incredible here that's, like, worth discussing, in my opinion, and, like, worth, like, really, like, giving a little bit of time to and, like, you know, watching this before you go to bed sometime for a couple of hours because, like, whatever, like, 
uh, it, we're all quarantined anyway. We're wa- we're running out of things to watch. Like you probably haven't watched Power Rangers yet. Go for it. You know. Yeah. Um. So, uh, but but seriously, that storytelling again. I just gotta like I really gotta go over these beats again because it's incredible. Tommy shows up and he saves the day in in effect of like we now have this incredible new power on our team and it's completely changing the dynamic in terms of like literally like this starts the arc of like Rita kind of like actually feeling like Rita is like losing not just battles but the war which culminates with the return of an old friend where Zordon actually asks the rangers in the return of an old friend do you want to keep being rangers I feel like y'all have done a lot Rita's kind of on the ropes I could find and train new rangers at this point and y'all could go back to living your lives and they're like nah we'll keep doing it because it's obviously cool as hell. Come on. But that's the arrival of Tommy. Like I say, before that, it's like they're beating Rita in battles, but they're never making progress in the war. And then Tommy coming to their side is like, now they're making progress in the war. So that's this incredible thing. But again, that puts Jason in this place of doubt for a time. And then that comes to a head. And then they become allies where they rely on each other. And they're like, battle brothers you know and they're just like you got this tommy yeah i got this jason what watch your back bro you know and they're just like they're like the best the 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 best battle friends that you could ever have and then again that's stripped away with it's just like wow that's like that's a really incredible arc for jason as a character to have to come back to being the leader after all of that and like to have the 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 burden back on his shoulders, which is physically represented by the power shield being given to him by Tommy, which is like a hugely symbolic. I mean, that power shield comes to just sort of represent leadership, I think, to an extent. Yeah. And my the craziest thing about this is like, it's almost like a book. There's three heroic sacrifices in one season. It's incredible when you view it in that way. I will say Return of an Old Friend, I liked more than I liked a bunch of the other two-parters. I didn't feel like the green candle was as good as Doomsday. And I rewatched Doomsday and I, I didn't, as although Doomsday I think was great, to me, Doomsday didn't have the amount of like emotional, oh shit moments that Return of an Old Friend did. Because Return of an Old Friend, when episode one of Return of an Old Friend hits, it's like the Rangers are on the ropes And Tommy walks back in. At the end, the episode just ends with Tommy coming into this dance hall where everyone was supposed to be at. And they're like, and he's like, what's going on? And the episode just ends there. And you're like, oh, shit, Tommy's coming back. I mean, that is fantastic. I will say about some of the others, though, the green candle is great because of Jason's struggle, like internal struggle within it. And also Tommy's internal struggle, like. Both of those characters go through these internal struggles within it where Tommy has to decide to just put everything on the line no matter what it means or what it takes. And similarly, Jason has to decide to sort of like betray Tommy in this way for the good of everyone. And I thought that was like a really incredible like storytelling moment. And Tommy forgives him for it completely, which is really powerful too because Jason is racked with guilt over it. That act of friendship especially like from the perspective of this being a children's show that's a really powerful thing to demonstrate for like tommy to just step up and say hey man we had to do it this way for everyone we had to i'm gonna keep it 100 dude (laughs) 
Jason's the weakest character in this entire season. <laughs> he is, basically. His character development is entirely contingent on his insecurities as a leader against Tommy. Actually, no, I have to... Sorry, Jason is close, but I think it's got to be Trini. You think so? She doesn't... Her character doesn't really develop. Her, her most... When it's the Island of Illusion, like, her most significant memory is, like, that stupid fear of heights stuff that, like, is not significant at all. Her character really doesn't develop or go anywhere at all in the first season. I wish I lived in a timeline where Trini and Billy got together. Maybe I'm just projecting, but like Trini really does seem to be interested in Billy. She is very affectionate towards Billy. She's like reassuring him constantly that he is a good guy, that he is smart and everything and trying to boost Billy's confidence up a lot. And I guess I see some romanticism in that that I could see on screen. Like I said, it's just uh, it could just be like a friendly type of love, too. But I do think that she has a lot of affection towards Billy and that plays up her character because she's also the only translator for Billy, really, too. Because when people can't understand Billy, they look to Trini like, hey, you understand math, right? And then she goes, yeah, so this is what Billy's actually saying. But that's the problem. Most of the best facets of her character either revolve around her relationship to Billy or a racial stereotype. There's not really anything hyper-redeemable. And she doesn't really get a hype episode. A lot of the other characters get hype episodes at some point. The, the funny part is, is that I'm, I'm in agreement with you that Jason and Trini are very close as like the worst characters of the season. I give a little bit more points to Trini because I find Trini's relationship with Billy far more interesting than Jason's only character development being the fact that he is a self-insert character a lot of the time. He's the self-insert leader and that he acts as a foil to Tommy. See, but that's the thing. I think that like Jason's character arc as like going from I am the self-insert goody-goody leader who always has like this, this straight and true moral compass kind of blah blah i think him going from that to like being able to like step back and like learn to like accept that other types of leadership is val are like valuable i think that's a pretty cool character arc that if we're going to talk about like at the very least like kids learning something from this or anybody learning something from this while watching it you know it's like the fact that jason was able to like step back and learn to let everybody else like take the reins when appropriate and like be the kind of like leader who like just let the other people around him use their skills which is like one of the most important types of leadership right yeah but that's one aspect though that that's one aspect yeah. of leadership i think that that's the only good aspect of leadership that he's good at because I feel like the whole episodes, all these episodes that we've watched, according to this filler guide, a lot of them don't have Jason figuring things out. A lot of them just has Jason being like, okay, guys, let's reconvene the team and let's, sure. let's gather all of our info together and somebody else will say the conclusion and then we'll morph out. And, you know, and then I do the team calls. That's really his only trait. And I, I just don't think it's interesting to watch. Trini, I feel, has more leadership characteristics shown and quality shown than Jason does. And yeah, they, they fucking play up that 90s racial blindness. I'm not going to lie. They do. Hands down. They're like, it, this show is definitely the personification of I don't see race. You know, like oh, yeah. a thousand yeah, percent. Sure. Like 
you're you're making yeah. under underpinnings and undercurrents of racism beneath it all. Like, come on. And some of it's just outright blatant at times. Trini's character, in my eyes, still feels more interesting to watch on screen than Jason. Jason is just Jason. What Jason brings is energy. That's what Jason brings. Jason brings the energy to like shout shit and to get hype. He is like the flavor flave of of the of the group. He's the flavor flave public enemy, you know, like Red Ranger. Yeah, he's the hype man, but like on his own, he's not that good. He's just not that good. So it's a race to the bottom with Trini and Jason. And and then Tommy is this pinnacle, like really like strong character that like just kind of shines through a lot. Um, let's talk about the middle of the pack. Let's talk about Zach and Billy and Kim, the characters who like don't always get to shine, but get to shine some. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I almost dumpstered Kimberly at like the very bottom. <laughs> like I straight up almost just like was just like you just the you offer nothing. But uh, what she does have is she has a lot of strong character develop mo development moments as a person, as a teenage girl. She's currently in her feelings a lot, and she is not scared to let people know how she's feeling. And she does this yeah. multiple times with Tommy, and she does it with other people, too, on screen. She's done it to Jason. Uh, she's done it to the guys a couple times where she's rid the guys, and uh, she's appeared strong every single time. Probably one of the most adult characters on screen as someone who is secure in themselves, but that's literally where the praise ends because every other time it's just playing up the 90s stereotype of a girl or she just doesn't have much to say. She doesn't really offer anything to the team. I, I think Kim's, yeah, I, I think Kimberly's biggest failing a lot of the time is just that, like, she just doesn't get any screen time to speak of in a lot of episodes. You know, like, she just doesn't do anything interesting. They they show her off quite a bit. Like, there, like there was that one, what was that one episode where they all of a sudden turned, like, evil and the pink ranger was, like, held by the two other rangers and they were going to attack her and stuff like that? Yeah. And then you just hear Kimberly like I, moaning or something like that. It's very awkward. It's a bit much. It's a bit much. Yeah. Uh, what is it? The reflection of something. Yeah. Bad, bad reflection, reflection on, on you. you. Yeah. I knew it was reflection. I will actually give Kim character one more piece of credit though. Actually, Kimberly often kind of solves the mysteries. Like she sort of has like a little bit of that like Scooby Doo like thing going on where like. When, like, some of the other characters are kind of, like, acting oblivious to the idea that there could be a problem, Kimberly is like, guys, um, something's not right here. Uh, Zach should be here by now. And everyone else is like, no, I mean, Zach's probably just late. He's chilling. And Kimberly's like, no, something's not right this time. And she starts snooping. So, like, I think that, like, that, that like, mystery-solving aspect of her character also kind of, like, helps save her from, like, being, like, a poor character because she does like she doesn't always shine for sure <laughs> that's pretty cool and then yeah i think just in terms of like if we're looking at like which of these characters serve as like excellent role models kimberly frequently serves as an excellent role model she's assertive she's confident um but she also knows how to like be patient and work with others she's you know a team player she just has like all of these positive like like attributes that she sort of like portrays as a character 
that it's like if you were going to point to one character as like having like a lot of role model characteristics that like are like very positive and not just positive but also somewhat progressive for the time especially and even kind of progressive now considering like we're in the time of like reactionary conservatism i mean let's be real like conservatives don't want women to be strong and assertive and like that you know (laughs) yeah like (laughs) yeah no kimberly goes hard in the paint when she feels a certain way i think the reason why she comes off that way is because she is the most confident of all the rangers yeah trini is soft-spoken like she's used to getting talked down upon all her life and she suddenly has friends who listen to her but Kimberly feels like every time she talks, it's with confidence. So she's like, no, I truly do feel this and I believe this within my my soul. And yeah. it, it's great to see. But yeah, like, I, I guess it is her lack of screen time. But honestly, we're literally talking about the same five moments in different right, ways. Right, that's the problem. That's the problem <laughs> is like the total number of moments that we're talking about that show this great characterization are relatively small. But I will say like, Ultimately, what Kimberly does, and she does this even in a lot of her small details, like like one-off lines and jokes and gags, she, as a character, demonstrates a, femini- a femininity that is very feminine, but is very strong. And it's yes. both of those things simultaneously, where, like, she has to have the skirt on her costume, you know, like, she's that person who, like, you know, likes that sort of thing, but... She never lets that turn into a type of like weakness, like patheticness, helplessness, it, like in the way that a lot of storytelling, especially in the 90s, a lot of femininity was just presented as like the helpless woman who needs to be saved. And Kimberly's like, no, I'm saving you and I'm doing it with a flower in my hair, you know? Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. For sure. Now we've got Billy and Zach. Yeah. Billy and Zach, I'm going to put Billy underneath Zach. Interesting. Yeah, so I think next is probably Billy for me, and the reason why is because Billy had a major pivot, right? So he was a pretty, like, insecure guy. He wasn't extremely insecure like he was in the Lost Prologue, but he was pretty insecure. And then we cut to Peace, Love, and Woe, where a girl is finally interested in him. And or at least outwardly interested in him, right? Who agrees to like meet up with him and like all this other stuff. And then she doesn't, I think she doesn't show or she she gets captured. She gets captured and all this other stuff. And I'll I'll yeah. talk about it in the in the next episode. But that's when Billy's like, wait, girls can be into me romantically. <laughs> and I'm just like, buddy, like, look at Trini. Like Trini is like all <laughs> over him. Like Trini is very physical with Billy. She'll like wrap his arm around him and stuff yeah. and just be and like have his have her hand on his shoulder and everything to reassure him <laughs> and calm him and everything. And I'm just like, dude, you know, you kind of like need to look to the side of you a little bit and <laughs> really realize this, what, what a good thing you have going on here. And then ever since that that episode, he suddenly had confidence. Since then, he's been very sure of himself. The thing I have a problem with Billy of is that towards the latter half of the season, it's a lot of Billy fixing things and being a background character. Yeah. So the times when he does talk, it's really good. And he, he does have annoyances, right? Like he says affirmative instead of yes all the time, right? 
or um he's not he basically like i've equated him to like izzy from digimon but yeah. he is better than that as a character because there <laughs> he does get confident sure he does put in the work as a ranger he does useful things the problem is, is that a lot of his useful things happen in the background yeah, I agree. And I mean, like, it's kind of like the Star Trek engineer problem where, like, over time, Star Trek got better at, like, figuring out how to make the engineers actually have, like, be interesting when they're in the spotlight doing engineer things. But, like, in the early seasons and series of Star Trek, there's just a complete, like, the engineers just are, like, these, like, dudes who just pop out of a maintenance shaft occasionally and are like i got you captain whatever you need you know and like billy's just doing that a lot for sure he's just like hey guys don't worry i'll have the thing back online by the end of the day and they're like great thanks billy let's go do the interesting i'm really thing. worried <laughs> that billy if this show was made in the 2000s billy would just be chloe from smallville and we'd be seeing like Billy trying to access the information superhighway at 60 data bits per second or some like stupid ass shit that Smallville was doing at the time with <laughs> Chloe's character. But I do have a feeling like that's probably would have been Billy. It could have been. Could have been. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things. But yeah, I could see what you're saying. Because like nowadays when you have a character like that, it's normally like some digital like hackers 1990s movie like landscape thing where they're like going through the mainframe and sending uploading data and all this other stuff and trying to make typing look cool or i mean i think a, a great example would be like firefly I, I i actually don't like have an extreme fondness for that show i know cancel me but i will say that like one thing that that show did well was like kaylee doing engineering stuff was like interesting in several episodes where it was like, ah, yes, the engineer has to, like, solve a critical problem with our spaceship or something. And it's, like, a process and it's interesting and she's going through character growth. You know what I mean? And I would also point to, like, honestly, like, the most obvious, back to Star Trek for a second, the most obvious perfect example is really just Miles O'Brien. Because in The Next Generation, he's just this guy that occasionally, like, pops on the screen for a one-liner. Like, yep, I fixed the transporter or whatever. And then in Deep Space Nine, that character gets to come back. He's, like, now the head engineer on this, like, major space station. It's a huge job. And it's, like, there's multiple episodes that largely revolve around him having to be the head engineer and how complicated of a job that is. And that stuff is actually relatively interesting. You know, it's like you can I think you can definitely like I think we could have and there are like in the very best moments with Billy. There are a few moments where you kind of almost get that where it's like, ah, Billy has to like solve these technological problems. And it's actually interesting, but it's rare. It's super rare. <laughs> it is. Then we get into Zach, arguably the best character outside of Tommy. Surprisingly enough, they do Zach a lot of justice. They give him a lot of voice lines, a lot of screen time. He's central to a lot of the plots. Tommy, Jason, everybody respects him. Yeah. Everybody admires Zach. And really his failings are like, he's sometimes too slick, right? He's sometimes too slick to get a girlfriend. Or, or he, just, he just lacks confidence, basically, is really the problem. Because even with that too slickness, the whole issue in Oyster Stew, the final episode, which, by the way, a huge disappointment as a season closer. We'll get more into that. But the whole issue, like, Angela does eventually, like, fall for him by the end. 
she just wanted him to just to just be like, "Hey, I'm Zach. I like you," and to just make it simple. He was like, he was determined to make it complicated, you know, and to like make it a big fancy date when it didn't need to be and all this stuff. And it's because of his own lack of confidence. And we see that in, in other episodes where like Zach definitely is like compared to the other character, he goes through these struggles of confidence a lot. It's interesting to note that everyone has parents, by the way. Like no one actually has a troubled childhood. It well, seems. Kimberly, actually, her parents are divorced. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kimberly's like whole shtick is that her parents are divorced in return of an old friend. That was like yeah. part of a subplot that never really got truly explored. But I mean, like Zach has a father figure, you know, everyone else has like a pretty stable life, a pretty stable childhood. Yeah. So Zach's like insecurities, I think, does have large to do with the fact that he is black. You know, but again, it's that thing where it's the racial blindness where the show was a little smarter. They would address that head on. Yeah. But instead, it's like that's obviously what's being implied in a way, but they won't say it because to say it at that time would be racist because to acknowledge race was racist back in, you know, 1994. Let me tell you why Uh, Oyster Stew is actually an underrated episode (laughs) of of Body Morphin Power Rangers season one. Yeah, I mean, it is true, right? Zach's fault in Oyster Stew is that he tries to be white instead of being himself. The episode ends with the girl that he's trying to impress saying, hey, just be yourself instead of trying to impress me with these fancy, like, white people things, right? Like, he takes her to a French restaurant where the waiter is committing racism against them. Yeah. We're outright judging them, like, outright holding them in contempt. Zach is just acting like an asshole because he's trying to like stretch his like mental muscles here and predict what everyone is gonna like <laughs> at the table. And I'm like, motherfucker, I have best friends who I've been best friends with for years, and I still wouldn't let them order for me. You know, at a restaurant. I, I will say this too as a little aside. Angela self-crits too at the end of that episode. Because she's also like, I shouldn't be so materialistic. So it's actually yeah. like, that's a that's a double awesome scene. Because both of the characters grow to like meet that moment where they could be together. And that's actually like an incredible thing to demonstrate. Honestly, just in terms of like healthy, like people like coming into relationships and stuff like that. It's like they literally, they both grow in that episode. And then they're ready to like actually handle this, the idea of this relationship. It's a cute moment. It really is a cute moment. I I love that moment. Uh, And then Zach kind of peacocks and starts singing and he gets his own song. Yeah. Speaking of songs, though, I do want to mention Go Green Ranger Go. Go Green Ranger Go. (laughs) That song is amazing. I think since I heard it in the, the back half of the season... I've actually had it on, like, a Spotify rotation. The outro to this podcast uses, like, a lo-fi hip-hop beats to study slash chill to kind of sort of filter over Go Green Ranger Go. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. Definitely. The music in general is pretty cool. It's a really interesting thing because, like, I, I, I wouldn't always like that kind of music, but it definitely fits, like, the tone of the show really well. And, like, it just feels really right. Um, and it's also like, 
they produced a lot of original music just for the show that's like all in theme and reflects like the specific moods and stuff that are going on. There's definitely like a really like a cleverness to a lot of that kind of stuff. I agree. Before we hop off of the Zack train completely. No, yeah, yeah. I love that character. I think he's an amazing character. He's probably the most relatable out of all of them. I would say he also just hands down gets the best highlight episodes. Like a lot of the characters get highlight episodes where they get to like shine a little. And like Zach's episodes where he gets to shine are like all pretty strong. Happy birthday, Zach, or whatever it's called that's not on the list, or Zach's birthday is like relatively strong in terms of like before Green with Evil. Like I think it's actually like not as good as Peace, Love, and Woe for sure, but like it's approaching that level somewhat. Also, like, Oyster Stew, like, Zach gets to, like, handle the season closer with, like, some of his stuff. And I, I have mixed feelings about that episode being the season closer. But if that was just a random episode, it would be a 9 out of 10 episode, no problem, and I wouldn't even complain about it. Like, I agree. It's, it's really good. And, like, again, like, it's another one where he gets a really good one. And there's also the dance contest episode. Oyster Stew, the problem with Oyster Stew is that the American footage is better than the Japanese footage which is a really rare moment that happens in Power Rangers. But when it does happen, it makes the whole episode feel jarring. Because even though Oysterizer fight, right? Like, so the main hype moment of that episode is the fact that it is a Tommy and Zach buddy cop episode. Right. So, like, they're trying to impress their dates or whatever, and then they have to suit up to go fight crime. They're going to face this enemy called the Oysterizer. And the only cool thing about that entire Japanese fight segment was the fact that Tommy gave Zack the dragon shield. Yeah. And they were like, we're going to sell some fucking toys. Let's <laughs> go. I had that toy, by the way. I had totally. the Black Ranger with the dragon shield toy. You had to. You had to get that. It was so good. But yeah, I mean, like, I think that's why that that as a season ending was so disappointing. Yeah, no, it's it's just, it just didn't feel like a season ender. That was the only real problem. I mean, dude, like the oysterizer came on the scene, hopping like clearly it was someone that dove into water, but they reversed the footage, and then when they defeated the oysterizer, it reversed it back. It was just bad. It's bad. It was really bad. Yeah. Not not a fan of that episode in particular for some some of those kind of reasons. But the overall like character development, pretty strong. And again, like it's another one where like Zach gets a highlight episode and he gets a like a pretty good one. He got a lot of the best highlight episodes for sure. And I think if Zach's character had any real failings, it was just that the racial blindness bullshit. He was obviously being stereotyped in certain ways by some of the writing and certain things and like just other like weird shit would like occasionally kind of creep in around the edges like i think if 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 like zach's character had been written in a more direct and compelling way like he could have been better than tommy because as it is he rivals tommy in terms of like being a really fantastic character i'm not gonna lie i almost want to put zach above tommy the more that we're discussing it but I know, I know in my heart of hearts, Tommy is like... I don't mean it. <laughs> the moral, he's the moral paragon. I hardly ever like characters who are goody two-shoes, but the actor behind Tommy is so genuine. Yes. 
in his acting and portrayal of Tommy, it's hard to not become enamored with the guy. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. And I will also say he's not just a one note guy. He struggles with a lot of weird like confidence and things himself. And like he does have like a lot of really compelling moments. And of course, he just gets a shit ton of screen time. His character just like really gets like lots of ample opportunity to develop and like grow. So it's just hard not to be like, yeah, that's obviously the character that's the most compelling because he's on the screen nonstop. <laughs> a thousand percent, dude. I mean, we've already basically covered it, but I just want to say Return of an Old Friend would have been a way better season closer than Oyster Stew. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie, dude, like, Tommy was kind of flexing in Oyster Stew. Like, I know we went over Zach quite extensively in Oyster Stew, but Tommy was like, dude, no matter how we play this, I'm still getting laid tonight. <laughs> like, that's the type of energy he brought in Oyster Stew. He's like, I'm just out here. I'm just trying to have fun with my girl. No matter what happens. Kimberly and I, we're still going to do it in the back of my truck. Like, it's, it's just how it's going to be. It's definitely that vibe where, like, you know, you, you're you're doing the double. I mean, because it's literally what it is in a lot of ways. But it's like, it's definitely that vibe of, like, you're on the double date. And, like, it's a blind date for you. And, like, your friends are married or some shit. You know, like, it's just like, yeah. like Tommy's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to, like, help you try to pull this double date thing off. But literally, no matter how bad this goes, Kim and I are t fine. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it, it is hilarious. Also, Tommy's fucking fit in Oyster Stew. Oh, yeah. I shit on the characters constantly when I'm watching the show. Because they always try and make them look like teenagers in the worst way possible. It's like, how can we make them all look horrible? Okay, yes, let's put them in oversized clothing. All of them. Except for the girls. The girls will get short shorts and muscle tees and all that other stuff and be able to wear whatever. But the guys, baggy clothes. And if it's not baggy clothes... Like, even Zach. Zach still wears, like... Button up shirts that are two sizes too big. Yeah, the style difference between the male and female characters in Power Rangers is a massive gulf. Dude, like, Billy him... must be fucking sweating. <laughs> that motherfucker must come out of there like and hives with some of the clothing <laughs> that he has on. I swear. He'll dude. have like a sweater with like a hoodie. And then, like, a button-up over it or some stupid shit. I'm like, <laughs> you're suffocating the man. <laughs> My God. What is your AC set to? Maybe we'll do this for the next season. We should have, like, kept a, a record of, like, best and worst fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely got to do that in another episode. But, yeah, dude, Tommy was fucking stunting. That man was flexing in oyster stew. Uh, but other times, like, he looked just as awkward as the rest of them. Yeah. They were like, yeah, sure. he's still a 17-year-old kid, quote-unquote, in high school. Yeah. it's Even with the, the kind of weak-ass ending in a way, you can see how, like, just given the overall, like, quality of the show, you could definitely see how, like, this was going to keep going. And there's, like, a very self-aware moment in Doomsday that involves, like, like, the people of the town, like, celebrating the Power Rangers. And I feel like that was, like, representative of the show also kind of making it 
you know, <laughs> in terms of like they knew that like they had like become a hit after the introduction of the Green Ranger. So it was like a victory lap. Yeah, it, it was a good victory lap. I mean, can I just say this is a huge I, I, I have story reasons why I like Doomsday and we'll get into that in the best and worst episodes. But can I just say Cyclopsis, one of the coolest Zords. He looks like an Ava. Totally. Yes. A hundred percent. Looks like something straight out of Evangelion, for sure. I was like, ah, shit, this is so cool. The fucking sculpt of that costume was unreal, man. Just looked so it fucking It looked like fire. Final Fantasy, like Final Fantasy Eight boss or something <laughs> like that, you know? Totally. It was definitely crazy. I, I loved that. The Megazord fights were hype as fuck. Like, as much as I could always say to myself, you know, I could cut my viewing time... By like 33% if I just fast forwarded past the transformation sequences. But you kind of just can't. You're just sitting there and you're just taking it. You're like, yeah, I've seen this a billion times, but it's still hype. Still got to watch it. Still got to watch the Megazord, uh, Mega Sword come out from the sky. I skipped some transformation sequences, but even I like often just let them run because they were pretty, pretty wonderful. I'm going to be honest, I don't. <laughs> like at worst, like I'll just bust out my phone during them. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't skip them at all. I, I, I honestly think that the, the Megazord sequences, the fighting, the kaiju fighting was always entertaining. Yeah. I was never like, wow, this is horrible. We, they shouldn't have done that. There was a little bit of that with Goldar holding the toy bus. That I think was a little much, if I'm being honest with you. But even when the Dragon Zord would fight, the, the biggest issue I had with the, the fights in general, though, is that... Dragon Zord turned bad way too often. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Being as a, a resident in Angel Grove must fucking suck ass. Because you do not know if the Dragon Zord is going to be nice to you today <laughs> or evil. You have no idea. It's like, oh shit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's funny as hell, honestly. I mean, obviously, like, if we think about, like, the real, like, practical implications of, like, how bad the fights are in Angel Grove, they're terrible sometimes. Like, buildings get just completely smashed, like, to dust. Like, all kinds of shit. Like... <laughs> Green with Evil, like, they straight up were just... The whole town got decimated. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, there was way too much fighting going on between <laughs> everything for there to be any Angel Grove left. They're just all in underground bunkers at that point. And then they're like, all right, it's over. Time to rebuild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Before we go into like fun things, oh, I would love to talk about the villains. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about the villains. Rita Repulsa, what were your thoughts this season? Um, I think that she's a pretty good villain in a lot of ways. And I will say, like, I have to put it into context a little bit. I think like that type of villain has become common enough in like western media that it doesn't seem as unusual now but at the time they were bringing of a, a, a like some villain archetypes with rita that you would really wouldn't see in a lot of western media and it was really more of just like a very strongly like japanese culture influenced kind of villain you know um and like making it work in that context i think is really cool I think Rita is, like, very interesting. I think that, like, especially from the perspective of having been a kid in the 90s and watching it, she felt like one of the most unique villains on television at the time, for sure. And, yeah, I still felt a lot of that while watching her. Now, I will say, 
Her character isn't always well realized, though, in a lot of individual episodes. There's a lot of, like, individual episodes where she just talks, like, three times. And she's basically like, oh, I'll make a monster. Oh, I'll send it to Earth. Oh, I'll make the monster big. And, like, that's the entirety of her characterization for the whole episode. That was, like, a letdown at times. But I think when her character was, like, given a chance to shine, like, she was definitely, like, a very interesting, enigmatic, and unusual villain that I liked. I liked her a lot as well. I don't really have any issues with Rita. My only problems is when she talks about getting headaches as like an end result of fights that she's lost. <laughs> that stuff's annoying. But outside yeah. of that, it's fine. I think she was good. She definitely had her, her time to shine, but I feel like she never got as close as she did in Green with Evil. You know, yeah. like Return of an Old Friend was kind of close where she was like, wow, legitimately like about to win and then Goldar just waves like everyone's power morphers and then gives them all up in the middle of a rock quarry amazingly enough <laughs> there's a couple of moments where she had the opportunity to just fully take advantage but didn't and didn't press and yeah. I guess I understand it's a kid's show I kind of had a hard time wanting to see like what in more adult version of this that was allowed to show like blood or like dismemberment or something like that a la Star Wars with like lightsabers and shit, how they dismember like arms and bodies sure. and stuff. I would have loved to see more of that, but I have to reconcile that with like, maybe I don't actually want to see that because the thought of like people dressing up in weird costumes and doing like gory shit just doesn't really sit well with me too much. It's too jarring, I guess. So I kind of like struggle with wanting like a more adult Power Rangers that handles some of this character development more for an older demographic, but also just wanting to see a kid's show for what it is and just believe in the moral paragon, you know? Yeah. As for, like, the rest of the villains, Goldar and Scorpina, Goldar definitely has moments where he's just like, I am so close to, like, beating the shit out of all the Power Rangers. Like, I just need one power buff, one or two power buffs, and I've got it. Yeah. He's the closest that comes, like, to actually drawing the Power Rangers outright, but he has a lot of fumbles that just seemed self-harmed, like self-inflicted. Oh, for sure. He plays with his food. He has all of these problems just in terms of, like, he, he won't really, like, focus down and just, like, seal the deal a lot of the time. And you definitely get the impression that this isn't just, like, oh, because he's a kid show villain entirely. Like, he's worse than some of the other villains in this regard. There are other villains who are way more straightforward and will just wreck the Power Rangers and, like, not make a big deal out of it. But Goldar is like, <laughs> I'm here to show you my power. You Rangers are fools, and I will make you feel the depths of your foolishness before you die. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely wild. The rest of the minions, though, I feel are just not good. Scorpina, even as hot as she is, her development on screen is basically just saying yes to everything. Oh, yeah. Scorpina is literally like the only reason that we talk about her is because she's attractive. Let's just be real. Thousand percent. There's nothing to say about that. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, wait. We have to talk about Lokar. Lokar? The fucking blue sky face. Oh, yeah, the blue sky face, the most OP of all the weekly villains. He shows up twice. He shows up a couple of times. He's bizarre every time. I don't, Lokar was definitely like 
just bizarre as hell. I could I didn't remember that at all from watching the show as a kid. Yeah, because like, like it seemed like Lokar was Rita's summon. Like she summoned and she did a Final Fantasy summon and got Lokar. <laughs> right. And Lokar could just like put you into another dimension, an island of illusion that's very hard to break out of. The other things that he can do is like I think he could just like freeze people. He could also revive. He can like rewind time or something like that, reconstruct things. He was almost like an evil Zordon a few times because in the same way that Zordon would sometimes be like, "Don't worry, I use some of my power to bring your Megazords back in quick time." You know, like like Rita used Lokar, like in Doomsday Lokar comes back to bring Cyclopsis back, you know? Um, like, Lokar seems, like, weirdly powerful, but also servient to Rita. It's it's definitely bizarre. It definitely felt kind of like a Final Fantasy summon. Definitely, if, if I'm going to give the credit to any, there's a lot of weird villains in Power Rangers. Lokar is the weirdest in Season 1, I think. He's literally, like, a man who's painted his face blue and wears a spiky helmet and gets, like, green screened into the footage. Bizarre as hell. It's incredible. <laughs> Incredibly bizarre. All right, I wanted to I wanted to get on a funny topic for a little bit. So we've we've talked about the whole season, the highs and the lows, how it starts strong, how it like you know stayed compelling enough that we could see how it became a very popular show, all that kind of stuff. All right, here's what I want to know. I I have some weird theories about Power Rangers based on the first season. And I want to know if you have any any weird theories that you develop about the show. I think one of the the things was the concept of the grid, which hasn't really been talked about yet. Mm -hmm. But it's where all the rangers get their powers and stuff. Yeah, the morphing grid. I've kind of been thinking that when they morph, they slip into a different dimension. Kind of like how Lucar puts them in a different dimension to put them in like Island of Illusion, for example. I think it's the same thing. The Morphers kind of open an interdimensional rift that then gives them a power-up. My only thing is the power-up is a suit of armor and, like, superpowers in terms of, like, super strength and stuff. So are they the suit itself as well? That's... Like, it's, it's kind of weird. <laughs> I wondered about that myself because a few times they kind of imply that, like, morphing is like it's not like you just put on a suit it's like you 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 physically change and like they sort of imply that the suit is their body at times when they're in like morphed into power rangers mode don't they tommy especially implies this a few times i don't know it definitely seems really weird <laughs> like it definitely feels it's kind of like, disgusting to think about like my impression definitely as a child was that like the morphers just sort of put a magical suit of armor on them. But re-watching it, that's not the way it's talked about at all. It's definitely more like an Animorphs type of thing in the way it's described, where it's like, no, I became the Green Ranger. You know, I don't know. It's definitely... <laughs> that would explain why the different morphers cause different changes rather than it just being the same suit every time. Sure. And why you can morph into different suits and stuff. So, yeah, but... Either way, it's kind of creepy to think about <laughs> because even if it is being added on to you, like the easiest way I could potentially think about it is like G Gundam 
where they go through like this gel substance and it goes over them and then the Gundam reacts to their gel. Yeah. So they're kind of like, it's kind of like that gel substance, but instead it's like a hard plastic substance <laughs> of what looks to be like hard oh, plastic. Uh, it's the worst. Nightmare fuel. Nightmare fuel indeed. How about you? Well, I had a, I had a couple of weird theories. Main one I'll get to in a second, but a smaller one first is I think Ernie is a Xanax abuser. What makes you say that? I I just started noticing after a while that there was something weird about Ernie's dialogue. Like, Ernie almost seems like he himself was brought in from the Japanese footage or something. And that, like, he doesn't quite make sense or, or something. Because, like... There are multiple He's the translator. Times. They hired the translator to be on screen. Like, I remember one of the weirdest scenes with Ernie is, I think it's maybe during Doomsday. If it's not during Doomsday, it's during another episode where there's just, like, there's a lot of high-stakes shit going on. And Tommy is training some kids in karate. And there start to be, like, scary shit going on in the city, and things are shaking, and people are scared, and they're running. And the Power Rangers like, we gotta go do this. And Tommy's like, I gotta stay here with these kids like i have two little kids that have like are like counting on me to like watch them right now you know so like he stays back at the gym and juice bar for a while um but then like later on um like things have calmed down somewhat and like ernie has like reappeared and tommy's like hey can can you watch the kids so that i can get out of here and like obviously he wants to go fight he's not saying that and ernie's just like he's like messing with a plate like a plastic plate and he's like yeah whatever and he seems super sedate no one has been sedate this whole episode everyone's been fucking freaked out you know because like crazy shit's happening in angel grove yeah that definitely seems plausible and he he also he just breaks the plate (laughs) tonally ernie is like on a different world he's like actually in hollywood you yeah. know, like actually in Los Angeles and everybody else is in like this weird right. neoliberal dream, dream world. Yeah. Ernie just feels like he's just breaking the fourth wall at any given moment in a way or something. But yeah, he literally breaks the plate is the funniest part of that whole thing. So he's just like fiddling with this plastic plate. and He just breaks it and he just still seems totally sedate like it's whatever. And he just seems that way all the time, like regardless of what's going on. Ernie frequently does stuff like dropping cakes on other characters or things like that as a gag. And every time he'll just be like, whoa, man, that's crazy. Whoa. Like, he he never has an appropriate level of response compared to everyone else around him who will be like, holy shit. Whoa, watch out. And Ernie's just like, huh? Okay. Ernie is definitely, like, abusing benzos or something. I don't know what else to say. You might not be wrong. (laughs) My other theory that I wanted to get into for sure is that I think Bulk is a rich fail son. Now, you've seen his parents. Yeah. no. In Return of an Old Friend. That actually just made me more convinced. How you figure? Well, first of all, the richest people tend to be the most uptight about possessions and things. And, like, Titus Mm. with a penny. So when his mom freaks out about getting cake on her dress, to me, that didn't feel like a poor person's reaction because a poor person does that stuff privately. Uh, If you're poor and a a special article of your clothing gets ruined, 
you scream and cry about that at home and you're very upset, but you don't do it in front of other people because that is like trashy, basically, you know? And like you you kind of like poor people generally learn to hide their poverty somewhat. See, you, you a poor person would say, oh, it's no big deal. I'll get it cleaned and just sort of act forlorn. But a rich person will freak out. This is my property you just damaged. That's rich person behavior. <laughs> also, most everyone else shows up relatively casually dressed, except for Kimberly's parents, who are obviously also probably moneyed, which just makes sense. All things considered. Yeah, Kimberly's um, Kimberly's parents are definitely rich. You you never really had a doubt, especially her mom seems loaded, and whoever that guy is that she's with, it like doesn't even talk. Um, <laughs> but yes, for the most part, though, mostly everybody else there shows up in relatively casual attire, whereas Bulk's parents make a point of showing up in somewhat fancy clothing. His seeing his parents didn't convince me at all. Here's the other thing: is that Bulk every new episode has like a crazy new outfit whereas a lot of the power rangers wear the same shit over and over again like bulk changes clothes more than the main cast okay he also he he puts time and money into the craziest projects imaginable seemingly out of nowhere like he hires these two professional ninjas that we never even figure out who they are to fight against tommy and jason in the martial arts tournament like what the fuck like how does he just become the manager of those people he does stuff like that all the time he also gets him and skull jobs that seem disproportionately above their level and it's always explicitly bulk that gets them the jobs the best example being the uh singing telegram and oyster stew bulk's like we have an important audition that i got us basically at an expensive french restaurant that was outdoors no they had already ace the audition which again implies money in my opinion because obviously how else is he gonna get through the door there it's because he's a rich fail son and he couldn't be told no so i'm convinced bulk is a rich fail son and as my final piece of proof i submit skull's behavior because the thing about skull is that skull is clearly a poverty-stricken hanger-on to bulk okay skull's parents are clearly lower class like biker gang people they probably are like real like working class people that work warehouse jobs or something you know <laughs> and and skull often very frequently bulk will like be in they'll be in situations like the best example is in um, wheel of misfortune bulk pulls this huge spread out of his lunchbox this massive meal okay and skull is just sort of hanging over his shoulder like doesn't have a lunch and is like can i maybe have a bite of something and, like, Skull does that sort of thing constantly. That dynamic especially sells me on the idea that, like, Bulk has money and pays for everything. And Skull is just, like, desperate to, like, be around the rich guy. Yeah, it makes sense. Your, <laughs> your theory is definitely plausible. I wouldn't put it past it. I thought you had an even bigger one. Well, I do have an even sh shakier theory is what I'll say. And it actually contradicts the previous theory. <laughs> So what's your shakiest theory? That Angel Grove is a command economy. <laughs> and honestly, this is just an attempt to explain the phenomena at the, at the end of the day that we talked about of like Angel Grove seems to get destroyed every six weeks. And like Angel Grove appears to be like a fake Los Angeles 
approximately the size of like a city like LA or Miami or another large city, something in that range, you know, maybe it's not as big as LA. It might be closer to like the Miami size, but it's big no matter what, you know, it's presented in this way, but it's also like literally we, there are scenes where like the Megazord crashes through like five buildings in a row as it's being knocked by a blast or like, where, like, we watch, like, the dra- evil dragon sword, like, shoot missiles at, like, huge parts of town and just destroy them. So how does Angel Grove rebuild between these massive battles? Because this is not, like, small potato shit. This is, like, dozens of major buildings being destroyed, like I say, monthly or bi-monthly, more or less. Because it's not every battle that gets to this extent. A lot of their battles seem to, like, take place outside of town somewhere. And, like, the mountains and things like that. So it's definitely not implied that every battle does this, but it's a regular occurrence. And it definitely seems like, to me, there is a suggestion made by the way that the economics of the Power Rangers are presented. Not just here, but actually, this is something, this is like a meta theory that applies over multiple seasons. Because there's a suggestion often to the economics that only luxuries are paid for. But I this isn't really, like, substantive compared to my other theories. <laughs> so the way I see it is that if that's the case, Angel Grove has to be the capital of the world. It has to be, like, where the UN is stationed at or something like that. And that's why they keep attacking it. Yeah. And that Angel Grove is essentially, like, the model city right by the UN. Yeah. And so if Angel Grove goes down, that's it. That's the whole world. That's the impression that I get watching, not, like I said, not just this season, but like Power Rangers in general, is that Angel Grove is the capital of the world. It's Metropolis. You know, it's that major city that is the, the absolute seat of power for the world in a lot of senses. Maybe not in every sense, but like this is where the world comes together. It also feels a little like there's probably like a one world government maybe or something sometimes. Yes. In the Power Rangers universe, like that, like uh, individual governments have been either like deprioritized or stripped away entirely in favor of like a, a unified world system, and that it revolves around Angel Grove. And it definitely feels, like I said, sort of like some kind of command economy in some ways. But that's kind of getting out there in a, in a sense. However, I will say that even if you don't go as far out there as me, it's impossible to look at the structure of the city of Angel Grove and think that this is totally normal. Or like I say, to kind of look at the world that Power Rangers takes place in and think this is exactly our political situation. It really reads like global one world, we've ended war type government. Yes, a thousand percent. Because all of the threats are not domestic. They're all aliens, right? So it becomes more of a, like, self-defense sort of show, which is really weird. They kind of had to pivot it that way because it's a kid's show primarily. Yeah. So it's very interesting to see how, like, they had this approach, right? Because they're not actively going out of their way to cause conflict. Right. They're going out of that way to resolve it. And that's what makes it different. Yeah, totally. Very, as we say, progressive for the 90s, huh? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm super excited to watch season two. And beyond, I know that there's going to be some rough spots, but I also know that there's going to be some really exciting stuff that develops out of this. Season one really set the stage for a really interesting show. And one of the really interesting things about 
season one of the Power Rangers compared to other things of the time is that although the Power Rangers do keep their identity, their true identities a secret still, which is like other superhero shows. In most other superhero shows, the, the heroes in, in the 90s especially were not getting credit. Spider-Man was often like on the bad side of the police or things like that. In the world of the Power Rangers, it is instead implied, it almost seems like the cops maybe don't exist. And that the Power Rangers are instead like lauded as like heroes. And I thought that's, I think that's kind of a cool thing that the Power Rangers did differently. That when we look at other superhero media of the era, this is something I think that really makes it stand out. Uh, this first season stand out compared to other stuff that was like airing at the same time. The Power Rangers were the heroes. They weren't fighting against the, a corrupt system and struggling to get the recognition that they deserved. The, the town, as the season goes, comes to more and more just be like, yes. The Power Rangers, we support them 100% and like to just like stand behind them, you know, it's very interesting, I think. I agree. I think that this season of Power Rangers, the, the type of world that they live in and, the, and the, the characters that they try and produce on the show definitely try and be moral paragons that still go through conflicts. And it's great. I don't, I don't think by any means this was a bad season. I got a question for you, Kennedy. What would you rate it out of 10? As like just a season of a TV show? Yes. Take in a context that this is season one. Well, <clears throat> actually, I have to be real. Because the thing is, is, we watched a really condensed guide. If I was basing it entirely on the condensed guide, I might rate it higher. But I have to be real because I've watched some of the stuff outside of the guide. And I know a lot of it's relatively mediocre. So I think realistically... I have to be like, it's like a 6 out of 10. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, um, realistically. But the highlights, if, you, if we were to just talk about, like, the filler guide that we watched, that's really solid shit. And I think if you condense it down into, like, a 14-episode, like, a 14 episode, like best episode, or 14-episode, like, best episodes season, it's a lot stronger. And it's, like, probably closer to, like, an 8, honestly. Very strong television in terms of like, yes, it's a kid show. It's always going to be a kid show. But like that aside, like this great storytelling, it's very different, especially for its time. It stands out against other media of its time. And I think like you you can just really see why this was more popular than other kid shows, period. Yeah, we're going to go extensively into what are our worst episode choices and our favorite episodes in the next episode of this show. But yeah. I will say that overall, I think season one with our filler guide, which has 22, it condenses 60 episodes to 22. It is the most honest viewing experience of Power Rangers, in my opinion. I think I lived up to that mission objective. And... Most of it, most of the really bad stuff takes place before Green with Evil. Definitely. Right? Like, High Five is horrible. Um, You really didn't like teamwork. Very bad, yeah. You know, I think we both agreed that Peace, Love, and Woe is pretty great. But outside of that, Green with Evil took place at episode 17. And I feel that a lot of the episodes after Green with Evil, which was a solid nine, range from like, a six at its worst to like an eight at its best. So I'm going to meet it right down there in the middle. And I'm going to say that this season one is probably a solid seven out of 10. I appreciate it for what it is. I just feel like 
after Green with Evil, it's really hard for it to reach those heights again. And uh, narratively speaking, it's hard to. But I wouldn't even say like singular episodes come extremely close to Green with Evil Part 4. And there's like huge disparities in writing ability, it seems like. Like every episode, it seems like there's kind of a gamble, unless it's a two-parter. The solo episodes definitely feel more gambly in how the dialogue is going to turn out and how certain situations are going to turn out. Yeah, for sure. I'll say one more thing about just like the show and what it represents and all that, which is that like, I think it was it was very powerful for a show to step away from, especially at that time, because again, the 90s is like the height of gritty superheroism, you know, in a lot of ways. I think it was very powerful for Power Rangers to step away from that in some ways and be a show about teamwork. And I think that like, that's one of like the themes that shines through throughout season one is this idea of teamwork. It's this idea of the Rangers coming together, overcoming adversity together. Often, like, there's multiple situations where it's like the problem could have obviously been solved faster if the Rangers had just communicated a little better and they learned those lessons. And I think that, like, that's, like, a really cool... Compared to, like, the sort of, like, moody, I can't trust anyone and no one can trust me, gritty superhero that, like, dominated the airwaves at the time. I think that's a really powerful, cool thing. And I think that, like, there are some themes like that that just really shine through. And if I was going to, like, recommend that anybody watch some of this stuff, it would be for these reasons. It would be for these reasons exactly. Because the Power Rangers really set a new mold that might seem, like, somewhat obvious to us now, but which was really radical in its time and which is still, like, a little bit different than a lot of other things like it. And I think it's really cool. And Grav, I just appreciate doing this show with you. And I'm just excited to dive into the next season. Yeah, for sure. We've got every other season coming up. And finishing season one, I think we've learned a lot from this experience, especially in our viewing habits for it. I am excited to jump into season two. I'm honestly excited to to do it all. I can't wait for us to just like reach into our deep knowledge pools and be like, oh, actually... Uh, in SPD, Josh was being a shitty police officer or something <laughs> like that, you know? Like, yeah, I can't wait for us to review SPD. <laughs> That's going to be something. Yeah. But yeah, I'm super excited. I'm super stoked for the future of not only Sentai Truth the Club, but for the future of like us viewing Power Rangers and seeing how it morphs throughout the years. I think this is a strong first season. I think like I in terms, especially in the context of 90s television in a 90s kids show of something that's never been done before outside of Japan, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do, especially since we know we both know some of the behind-the-scenes turmoil that happens in the second season. So it'll, yeah. be, it'll be interesting to see how it transitions out of it. For sure. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And as always, we'll see you guys next time. And let the power protect you. Rangers, thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and Stitcher. It'll help other truthers find the club. And be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast. Our email for questions is sentitruther at gmail.com. You can follow Kennedy on Twitter at Kennedy T. Cooper. And you can follow me at Gravcast. As always, Rangers, may the power protect you.